0: Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicolette Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the McKnight Foundation. My name is Gordon Stewart, moderator of the Town Hall Forum and pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Today's speaker is Frances Moore LaPay, best known for one of her 11 books, Diet for a Small Planet which awakened its readers to our participation in the causes of world hunger. It also introduced many of us to such things as garbanzo beans and eating lower on the food chain as a way of being more responsible world citizens. In 1975, Ms. LePay co-founded the Institute for Food and Development Policy, which was described by the New York Times as one of the nation's most respected food think tanks. Ms. LePay comes to us today with another issue, namely the reclaiming of our own democratic selves and our responsibility for the public good. Ms. LePay and her husband, Paul Dubois, co-direct the Center for Living Democracy in Brattleboro, Vermont, and have co-authored the book, The Quickening of America, Rebuilding Our Nation, Remaking Our Lives. At a time of hot national debate about values and public policy, Ms. LePay's travels across America with her husband, Paul, have strengthened her belief in the ability of ordinary citizens to make a difference in their lives. The Town Hall Forum welcomes a voice of conscience and hope on the topic, rebuilding our nation, remaking our lives. Please welcome Francis Moore LePay.
1: Thank you. It is an extraordinary time to be alive and to be middle-aged. It is a time of unsettling confusion, an exhilarating possibility. We feel ourselves poised on the edge of disaster, but perhaps, too, poised on the cusp of a promising transition. We live, I believe, in an era in which the worldview we've inherited the set of ideas that shape our view of reality, has taken us as far as it can. Its assumptions have taken us into a world that we can't really take pride in, a world we sometimes fear, and a world that sometimes we feel we simply cannot bear. This truth comes home to me in, in horrifying numbers, in realizing that access to resources in our country is so skewed that now one quarter of our youngsters are born into life-stunting poverty, and in just five years, one million more children were ensnared by poverty's trap. In realizing that access to resources has become so skewed that the top 1% of Americans control more wealth than the bottom 90% of us put together and in realizing that life opportunities are so skewed that African-American babies die at twice the rate of white. And a newborn African-American male in Los Angeles today faces three times the likelihood of being murdered than being admitted to any of the campuses of the University of California. Now, I let these horrifying statistics wash over me, and I ask myself, how could this be? How could this ever have come to be? Is it simply that we are so callous and so racist as a nation that we have no other choice? No, I believe that we are stuck in time. We are trapped. Our dominant culture is still in the grip of a worldview that took shape over three centuries ago. And even as we think of ourselves as modern and breathtaking new technologies trick us into believing that we're moving inexorably forward, In the social sphere, we're stuck. Newt Gingrich isn't new. Neither was Reagan or Bush or for that many, many who call themselves liberals. They are articulating with new labels, a set of assumptions that have defined our sense of social possibility for centuries. This worldview, dubbed by philosophers as the mechanical worldview, has two core and interlocking big ideas. One... Human beings are no more than isolated social atoms, analogous to physical atoms. We're driven by our own inertial force, self-interest. As encapsulated egos, we are by our nature at each other's throats. In the 17th century, Thomas Hobbes put it quite neatly, Homo homini lupus, we are to each other as wolves. And two, in this mechanical worldview, Just as discoverable laws govern the physical universe, discoverable and immutable laws must govern the interaction of these social atoms, that's us. The consequences for democracy of these two core ideas are profound. First, the democratic process, that is human beings deliberating over commonly defined ends, is suspect. After all, if we're nothing more than isolated social atoms, we are, at core, separate, unable to walk in each other's shoes, precisely what democracy requires. So any process of coming together toward common ends must be kept at a minimum, for in it lies danger. Some self-serving social atom will always manipulate that process toward selfish ends. No wonder such profound suspicion of government, for after all, what is government but the institutionalized form of our common decision-making? So here we are in the 1990s with two-thirds of Americans recently reporting government as the greatest threat to our well-being. And this antipathy bleeds ignorance of what government is. One-fifth of Americans believe, for example, that welfare is the largest item in the federal budget. And yet, aid to families with dependent children makes up 1%. The second consequence, if democratic processes are not to be trusted, it behooves us to discover mechanisms of interaction set beyond human tampering. And with Adam Smith's invisible hand of the market, we thought, aha, we found just such a handy mechanism. Leave as many choices as possible to the market, and we're safe. Where has all of this taken us? Here, as the 20th century closes, with healthcare sold to the highest bidder and now with the emergence of surrogate motherhood, you could say that even life itself has become a commodity on the market. And our reverence for the market relations over deliberation has encouraged us unquestionably to accept decisions of huge unelected economic bureaucracies, we call them multinational corporations, because they claim the mantle of the market, never mind that their enormous resources often permit them to shape more than respond to markets, or that they have more influence over our well-being than most of the elected governments that we say we so mistrust. My point is that this deep suspicion of the deliberative process, combined with unquestioning allegiance to the market, These are sentiments so deeply rooted in our culture that they are like the air we breathe. They've become an invisible ether, defining our sense of the possible. With these assumptions unquestioned, can we overcome today's terrible, terrible problems? Let me explain why I believe we cannot. Consider our problems, poverty. Spreading, schools that are failing our children, a deteriorating environment, spreading violence. Consider their nature. We all know, we can all acknowledge that they are complex, they are interrelated, they are pervasive, they touch us all. Solutions, therefore, will entail vast changes in our attitudes, in our behaviors, in our values, in our ways of living. And yet... Few of us willingly commit to change unless we feel ourselves owners, decision-makers, unless we believe the solutions are ours. But how do solutions become ours? Only when we take part in designing them, only when we ourselves have a chance to weigh the alternatives and choose the trade-offs that we prefer. If there is truth here, then today's problems can only be solved through a vastly expanded deliberative process, a vastly more inclusive process of shared decision-making than this nation has ever known. But here's the rub. (laughs) Our inherited belief system makes this almost impossible. It says, no, 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 no. We mere humans have no place, for example, in economic decision-making. We must let the market and corporations responding only to it determine our fate and it pits us against government. Government is them. Government is the other, of which we must always remain wary. Government is nothing that we can own. It can never be our tool for problem solving. We're trapped. Here we are, with our smug sense of moderni- modernity, closing the 20th century, still hogtied by assumptions about self and society that took root hundreds of years ago. Yet. As I opened this talk, I said to you that I believe that we live in a world of unprecedented opportunity, for I believe that there is indeed, to steal M. Scott Peck's title, a world waiting to be born. I believe that reality is pushing on us a new set of understandings that profoundly challenge the inherited mechanical worldview. The ecological crisis, for example, it's riveted our attention on connectedness. In a recent survey, not many U.S. students could locate Mexico on the map. Yet, they all knew about the ozone hole. We are each affected by the ozone hole we each help create. It's the ecological crisis reminding us that we are not isolated atoms at all. We are organisms sharing a common fate. And of course, the communications revolution has linked us in ways unimaginable, even a generation ago. So relatedness is replacing atomism or separateness as the overriding paradigm of our time. But also pressing us to abandon the mechanical worldview is something more powerful still. That is failure. When evidence of failure is now in our face, so to speak, desperate people experiment. Desperation, I'm convinced, is today's mother a remarkable social invention. So in the midst of social catastrophe, a society like ours torn by class distinctions and racial mistrust, rising violence and spreading despair, in the midst of all of this, a new understanding of what works is emerging, arising not out of any intellectual's blueprint, but out of the creativity of millions and millions of regular Americans. What does it look like? How can we spot it? Well, we call it a quickening. In fact, my husband, Paul Dubois, and I named our recent book The Quickening of America. Because quickening refers to the first stirrings that a pregnant woman feels. The first stirrings telling her that, indeed, she is carrying new life. And by the quickening of America, we mean the first stirrings of a new democratic culture. Its core assumptions stand in striking contrast to the dominant mechanical worldview. Now, where do we see this quickening? We see it certainly in schools. The media focuses our attention on vouchers and privatization, but the most significant breakthroughs in education, teachers, nationwide report, the most significant breakthroughs have to do with the democratization of decision-making from the classroom to the district level. Whether it's the dozens of districts experimenting with school-based management or the 100-plus charter schools nationwide, Americans are breaking free of the factory model of education, of the mechanical top-down organization of schooling. They're inventing a collaborative model of decision-making, an inclusive model, where in some cases not only teachers and parents, but even students, think of it, students have a voice. We visited a school in upstate New York, a public school, run for two decades as a consensual democracy. We mean students meet weekly, making key decisions that guide the school. They run the cafeteria, for example, and sit on key committees, including one that evaluates the faculty. The week before we, w- we visited, these young people had voted to increase their own graduation requirement above the state mandate. And we said, wait a minute. Kids don't make it harder on themselves. And they said, this is our school. Of course, we're going to make it the best we can. This school, long considered an aberration, now boasts a long waiting list, and the principals become a much sought-after advisor on school reform. More democratic collaborative education is also taking shape in what some call community schools, schools re-embedded into the life of the community, open seven days a week and in the evenings. And youth community service is burgeoning, practiced not just as an adult mandate to kids to go out and do good, but rather young people working in partnership with government and business, solving real community problems, whether it's in Maine where high schoolers are reclaiming a watershed for wildlife and recreation, or eighth graders in Los Angeles rewriting official voting instructions for the entire county of Los Angeles. But what about economic life? The inherited worldview tells us that economics is private, not part of democratic public life. As citizens and workers, therefore, we have little to say there. What's changing? For their part, many businesses are discovering that to succeed, workers must bring not only their hands, not only their brains, but themselves to work. That means, think of it, workers as people, as decision-makers, Suddenly, within 15 years, team management in the workplace has jumped from virtually nothing to involve nearly half of Fortune 1000 companies. Yes, some of this teamwork is merely public relations, but not not in all of it by any means. We talked with workers at the GM Saturn plant in Spring Hill, Tennessee. For them, teamwork is no PR ploy. They said... No time clocks here. They treat us like adults. We have a say even in such issues as hiring and firing. And when GM was agonizing over whether to build a new plant nearby, the workers were centrally involved in that decision. It's a new world, one worker told us. We can never go back. Actual legal ownership by workers is also on the rise. Today, 21% of publicly traded firms have significant employee ownership. Interestingly, these worker-owned firms are outperforming the market averages. So our economic lives, of course, are affected by a lot more than what goes on in our own workplace. They are shaped by huge forces determining what firms land in our communities to begin with, and on what terms do they leave, and where do banks invest, and much more. So here, too, citizens are assuming new roles. Community development corporations tackling housing and job problems have expanded tenfold in a decade. Today, two million Americans are involved in fast-growing community-based citizen networks, many of them citywide coalitions involving 30 to 50 religious congregations in one of these. Most of these citizens never before having been involved in economic decision-making. Consider Teresa Francis. In her early 60s, when we talked with Teresa, she had worked in a brass factory all her life. Her only public life beyond work had been singing in a church choir. Then her company threatened to leave the Connecticut Naugatuck Valley where she lived and worked. And at that point, she was invited to join the Naugatuck Valley Project. 30,000 families, 30,000 families working together to confront the economic uh, devastation threatening them. Teresa told us how she learned to do research, to speak in public, even to negotiate with CEOs. Teresa was quite candid with us. She said, I learned recently that I have terminal cancer. But you know, she said, this is the happiest time of my life. I know now that I don't have to just let things happen to me. I can make things happen. Teresa, as so many others we've met with her spirit, are moving our culture beyond simple blaming. They're moving beyond righting a specific wrong, correcting a specific evil. They are creating an ongoing place for citizens in economic decision-making. They are legitimizing the role of citizen in public life. Now, I've mentioned education and economics, but what about the media? We've absorbed the notion that the media is just another commodity. With airtime and print space going to the highest bidder. Not a public good, but a vehicle for selling. Now, here too, we see new thinking. Many forces converging to allow the media to perceive its own interests differently. Many forward thinking journalists are telling us that, of course, if people feel disconnected from their communities, not part of any community, why would they read a newspaper? So, today, 100 or more newspapers are reconnecting with citizens to recreate their communities. Take the Charlotte Observer in North Carolina. Not only did it cover the 92 elections by focusing on issues that the citizens had already defined as the most important to them, and by the way, newspaper readership went up, and so did voting, but it didn't stop there. It teamed up with TV and radio and sponsored in-depth reporting, in-depth polling, and several town meetings on what citizens had defined as the most pressing problem for them, crime. The process generated an extraordinary upwelling of practical solutions from the city's most dangerous neighborhood. And the United Way served as a clearinghouse so that virtually every need identified in this wide-open process is now being addressed in some way. For example, imagine this, 18 law firms, 18 law firms volunteered their services free to close down crack houses in Charlotte. In Akron, Ohio, the Beacon Journal carried a five-part series on race, but it didn't stop there. Newspaper staff, 50 newspaper staff, served as moderators for citizen discussions on race, coming up with over 100 suggestions about how we can overcome racial tensions in Akron, Ohio. Now, after publishing these ideas, the paper did something that some might consider a little naive. It asked its readers to make a New Year's re- resolution. That resolution was, I will do everything I can to improve race relations in 1994. 22,000 citizens responded. That is one out of every 10 person in the circulation of the Sunday paper. And more than 100 community groups began planning projects with members of the, op- of the other race. Now, such initiatives erode the notion of media as simply a commodity and reestablish the media as a vehicle for communication, community communication, a linkage of problem solving. Now let me turn for a moment to the fourth dimension, to a fourth dimension of our public lives, government. It's sort of everyone's new curse word these days. But a knee-jerk stance that sees government as necessarily limiting our freedom jibes poorly. It jibes poorly with the notion, the emerging practice in which government serves as facilitator of our freedom. Freedom defined as our capacity to create the futures we want. Citizens are learning, therefore, to do more than blame government In dozens of cities, from Birmingham to here in the Twin Cities, from Roanoke to Portland, citizens and government are learning new ways, creating new structures to hold each other accountable for solutions we all want. Take Seattle. There in 1989, citizens created a new department It's called the Department of Neighborhoods. Its function is to animate citizens into problem solvers. Its Matching Grants program has funded over 500 citizen-generated projects with results ranging from new playgrounds to reduced infant mortality. And this department actually funds citizen organizers and holds training sessions where citizens learn the skills of effective public life. One Seattle resident, Ellen Stewart, described why she had been able to develop a partnership with government. She said, I admire the city for creating little monsters, because they're helping groups that may conflict with their views. They are putting their trust in people. Now, all of these developments, from education to economics to media to government to much, much more, are tragically invisible to most Americans. And yet, herein, powerful new leading ideas are taking root. we are not isolated, separate atoms bouncing around in limited space, but profoundly social creatures becoming who we are in relationship with one another. Now, of course, you say every pop psychology book and every TV commercial reminds us that, yes, indeed, all the satisfactions are in relationships with private loved ones. But that's not exactly what we mean. What's increasingly appreciated is that public relationships occupy most of our waking hours at school, at work, in associations of all sorts, and it is in these arenas that we, in large part, define ourselves and find meaning. And in each of these roles, we are fully capable of becoming effective decision makers, as I suggested in all of the examples that that come out of, of these stories. Second, the new ideas emerging from experience. What these diverse examples suggest is a growing realization that democracy is not merely a defensive good to protect us against oppressive rulers. It is a practical good. It is an everyday good. It is a way of life that works. In fact, our problems cannot be solved any other way. We call this understanding and practice living democracy, and we call our organization the Center for Living Democracy. By this, we mean democracy understood not as what we have, but as what we do. Third, embedded in these diverse examples is also a deepening understanding that we're not born knowing how to do democracy. We're not born, in one sense, citizens. We are innately social creatures, to be sure, with the capacity for effective democratic life. But what we've long failed to appreciate, to fully grasp, is that democracy depends on deliberate cultivation of certain skills and habits of the heart, what we call the arts of democracy, just as we have to learn to read or write or play the piano if we're going to be good at it. For let's face it, democracy is not easy. We love to quote the city of St. Paul's former citizen participation coordinator. After years on this job, she told us, you know, I used to feel I had to apologize for democracy. It's so messy. But, you know, I finally stopped apologizing. It is messy, and it works. So the question is, How do we live creatively with the messiness of democracy? It means in classrooms, in workplaces, in all our civic organizations, we deliberately teach the skills and practices and attitudes from active listening to creative conflict that make public life rewarding. And people are learning how to do that, even on issues as incredibly divisive as the abortion debate, or even in the Northwest, bloggers and environmentalists are learning how to practice the arts of democracy and reach common ground. As one leader in the nation's most effective citizen organizations told us, few of our members have gone to college, so this organization, this is our university. It's our university in public life. The human development here is incredible. We can learn democracy. Yes, we do live in an extraordinary time, We live, perhaps, on the cusp of transition to democracy's next historical stage. Will we slide backward in hopelessness, in feeling of powerlessness? Will we slide backward? Or will we move forward into this promising but risky unknown? In answering, I I love to remind Americans that believing that something new is possible under the sun should not be beyond us after all it should be our very birthright james madison near his death said america has proved that which before was believed to be impossible and jefferson believed so deeply in human creativity that he argued each generation should write its own constitution i believe that the seeds are present in our culture including those i have hinted at in this talk The seeds are present for America again to prove that which before was believed to be impossible. In our case, democracy not as simply the distant province of some official somewhere or an impersonal marketplace, but democracy is the actively learned and rewarding practice of we, the citizens. Let me close with the wisdom of philosopher Lewis Mumford, musing on the dusk Of the 20th century. In such an era, he wrote, our main handicap will be a lack of imagination. This is one of those times when only the dreamers will turn out to be practical people. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ms. LePay, for challenging us to imagination and to hope, and for helping us to recognize a moment of where we are in the history of ideas and social organization, and uh, challenging us to claim our freedom and our responsibility and our birthright. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum from Westminster Presbyterian Church on the Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. Today's speaker is Francis Moore LePay, director of the Center for Living Democracy and co-author of the book, The Quickening of America, Rebuilding Our Nation, Remaking Our Lives. Ms. LePay's appearance is made possible by the McKnight Foundation. Those of you who would like to pose a question are asked to submit it to one of the ushers here in the hall. You can do that by using one of the yellow cards. At this time, I'd like to ask Ms. LePay to come back to the podium, and I would like to ask for the co-author of the book and the co-author of the Center for Living Democracy, her husband, Paul Dubois, to to, uh, join her at the podium for this time of dialogue, questions, and answers. So many people feel overwhelmed by the size of the problems and by their, their own sense of insignificance as citizens how do we how do we chip away at the myth that the public life is something that somebody else does somewhere else uh, or something that somebody else has? And given all the ugliness and all the meanness in the world, why shouldn't we just curl up in some private corner and let the world go by?
1: Well, I think that, that the most the very most important thing given what I said that we are these social creatures and we are therefore made by the people that we associate with and hear about and want to emulate, is that we must make visible the invisible. Everything that I said in this talk today, all those examples are invisible to most Americans. Therefore, they feel they have grounds for absolute despair because it is so difficult to see what what positive is emerging today. And so, one of the things that Paul and I are doing at the Center for Living Democracy is, is creating a national news service to begin to bring these stories to light. But whatever you are doing, see the, 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 the frustration that we feel is that we see people so busy doing the things that, that we are talking about here that they don't think about telling the world about it. And of course, the media is not geared to see this as news. So we have to be working on making that shift. This becomes news this becomes something that we can learn from one another as we do. And I think that is the only way to fight the, the, the despair that, that is so incredibly um, um, deadening.
0: Paul, apparently, just add, yeah. I'll, I'll
2: just add one comment. You know, the most common myth that we encounter around the country is a really very simple one, that people are apathetic, people don't care. And yet, indeed, you here today, and literally thousands of people who will be hearing this broadcast, And literally tens of millions of people across this country prove every single day that they care a great deal about what's happening in this country. They feel despair because they feel powerless, because they feel voiceless. And they are angry. The contract on America and so many other symptoms in this country demonstrate a deep-seated anger. But indeed, people care. They just don't have any idea what to do. And one of the reasons they don't have any idea what to do is because they don't know what their neighbors are doing. They are so isolated. And I can't tell you the number of towns we get a chance to speak in in which we we find that people discover through our own talks that indeed something is happening the next town over and sometimes just the next neighborhood over That directly addresses the problems they're concerned about education and welfare and health and the environment and racism and poverty and the terrible, terrible condition of so many of our children and so on. There is a great deal happening throughout the country. That's why people can't curl up and in fact, and that's why people should not curl up um, and just simply let all this pass because we have thousands and thousands of stories, literally thousands, like the ones that Francis just spoke of today where people are actively engaged. And so what we want to do is of course let others know about that engagement, but more than that, we want to help people deepen their sense of the skills that they need to obtain a voice because just as Frances said in her talk, we're not born citizens. We think we are, we're born with some structure of democracy, but we're not born learning how to do democracy until we practice. And most of us these days simply don't practice. But indeed, we are uncovering tens of thousands of people who are doing that. And those are the people we can learn
0: from. In your your book, you say that the culture communicates to us that there are really only three ways that we can respond in time of distress. We can give up, we can protest, or we can sacrifice. If if you are poor in America, doesn't the current mood of the country reinforce the view that those are the only alternatives?
2: Yeah, I think it does.
0: Of course it does. Um,
2: my goodness, and not even if you're poor. Almost everyone seems to feel that those are the choices because, indeed, they don't know anything better. On the other hand, there are 5,000 schools across the country where young people, confronted by violence, are learning mediation sco- uh, skills in their schools and then, and then resolving the disputes of their peers right there on the playground and outside on the streets in front of the schools. And we can tell you of, of, of kids who go to school past the crack houses from the dilapidated homes, from the, from the destroyed families, and manage to do well in schools because they are, in fact, educated democratically as we describe in the book and in Francis's talk and so on, because they learn a new way of being. We've got to start listening to these people a great deal more. And yes, if you're poor, certainly, it seems even more hopeless and you seem even more powerless and even more voiceless than all these, you know, these fairly wealthy people or whatever, relatively speaking, who look as though they have a voice, and yet, in fact, you know, one of the things that we are sometimes asked about is this contract, um, is it for America or on America? In any case, um, this contract, um, you know, and you know, we're asked, well, what about that? And one of the answers is very simple. I have yet to meet a single human being who had anything to do with it. Wealthy, middle class, poor, it doesn't really matter, okay? The point is that we're not actively engaged in the way that Francis was talking about. It's not a bottom-up. That doesn't represent a bottom-up um, event of any sort. And so poor people also are learning. The stories in the book are mainly interracial. They are cross-racial. We don't emphasize that in this particular book. We had to cut 40% of the text, by the way, um, just to satisfy the publisher who still wanted a paperback. But in any case, they are interracial, and they are mostly about the people in your question. They are mostly about poor people.
0: Thank you, Paul. Francis, would you like the title of your book is The Quickening. And the question from the person in the audience is, what do you believe is the gestation period of this new democracy? <laughs> Would you like to take well, a shot? <laughs> uh,
1: I don't think we have any predictions. Uh, I, I really don't. Um, I don't. I don't, I don't, it's uh, back, back to the original answer. I think for us, so much depends on how, how how much becomes visible so that it can spread and that is such a key piece that's missing today so that gestation period for us so much hinges upon how how much effort and successful our effort is put into making visible what positive is happening
2: yeah there are people around the country who would say the birth has already taken place you know and if we're going to carry that metaphor I was, I was once a midwife and I can tell you that this, this metaphor means a great deal to me and, and you know you could have fooled us. When we first, right. And when we first uh, used that, you know, we wrote this book literally three and four years ago. And when we started the book, we didn't know. If we, were going, we decided, look, the easiest thing to do is to write another book about what's wrong with this country. We were going to look around to see whether anything was right. Was anything working the way it's supposed to? And we didn't know if we'd find a half dozen good examples. And we thought we could, if we could find a half dozen, we'd draw the lessons from them. And then we found a half dozen, and then we found a dozen, and then we found a hundred, and then we found literally a thousand. And since we've written the book, we've plugged into other networks, and we find out that we actually have altogether, we're in touch with almost 3,000 stories of people doing very, very important things. Now, it may be that the quickening is now finished. Maybe the birth is actually taking place. That doesn't mean that indeed, you know, this, 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 this very, very new, um, you know, phenomenon among us can't be squashed. Can't be. Can't be. Um, um, you know, done away with. But it does mean, indeed, that something very alive is happening. And we need to plug into it, and we need to support it as strongly as we can.
0: It, as I read your book, I thought this is this is a book that ought to be in every high school. It's uh, and er- earlier, if we could push it down into lower <coughs> grades so as to, uh, to begin to quicken that sense of hope. And, and unlike Newt
2: Gingrich, he's not even getting a commission for that statement.
0: <laughs> <But> thank you. <laughs> the, the question, I'd like to, 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 to give you a question from the audience in that regard. If, if we don't save our kids, everything else we do is for naught. How do we quicken this responsibility in them? How do we begin to redeem our own children?
1: Well, I, what, actually, the most personally exciting for me personally, uh, Aspect of what we're observing is is the quickening going on um, with young people today. I was able to slip into this talk a little hint here and there, in 25 minutes. But but the 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 phenomenal development. Let me just give you one more of a, of a sense of it, piece of this that, that answers that question, and that is that um, an organization in Maine called Kids as Planners began about five or six years ago, seeing whether or not young people in towns in Maine could actually be helpers in creating the uh, plans for their towns, everything from deciphering satellite photographs and figuring out what does it really mean, what do the colors really mean in our community, and and, uh, analyzing the garbage to figure out what kind of recycling would make sense in our community. Out of this uh, um, early uh, stage of kids as planners, now this is operating in five states, beginning what they call using town as text and what they call apprentice citizenship, and this is way beyond what we ordinarily think of as uh, community service. Because when I hear, unfortunately, when I hear the term community service, I think of, of an adult deciding that a kid should go out and maybe lick some envelopes in, a, in a, a service agency somewhere. But we're talking here about young people actually deciding what the problems are to be solved and figuring out the strategies for solving them. And it's phenomenal what they've accomplished. Uh, I just saw a tape of a young man... Who was part of a group, part of the same group, who um, that had put together a a very elaborate plan to reconstruct a watershed that had been very, very damaged, and to recreate it both as a wildlife habitat and uh, for for recreation. And he said, "You know, they called me an at-risk kid, and look at me now." And it was so moving that uh, here is a very a labeled child that had been respected and been believed in, that he had something to contribute to the community. As I said, now this is spreading to five states, and I think this approach is is absolutely the approach. It's learning by doing. It's what they call it, apprentice citizenship. And we also see, for example, uh, universities like the University of Pennsylvania. Instead of being an island in the sea of poverty in West Philadelphia, the university now, hundreds of faculty members are working in partnership with local community organizations, local high schools there are now nine high schools that have medical students teaching courses on on health and they teach courses to adults in in night school at the high school part of that movement I referred to as the community schools movement this is I completely agree with the thrust of this question that we have to start with young people and the key to it is actually trusting that they have a lot to offer building on their interests trusting that they uh, had the capacities to help us solve our problems and not just sort of plugging them into some adult-defined, you be good.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we've got some other some wonderful questions here. Um, one, one is a, a comment. Um, didn't living democracy, as you're describing it, exist in the New England town hall meeting of the 18th century? Are we simply seeing that the more things change, the more things remain the same?
1: Well, I think that our world is so much more complex now. And the difference I see is that in those earlier days, the days we romanticize, uh, that public life was much more simple. And therefore, there are elements that could be brought together in a town meeting. But uh, many of us did not work outside of our own homesteads so that our public lives were much more circumscribed. Today, the dangers facing us, everything from toxic waste, uh, to violence are so much um, more complex and, and more uh, uh, evident, as well as our public lives are so rich now. We, almost all of us have public lives at work and are connected through religious congregation and are connected to a variety of, 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 of clubs and through our, our uh, civic organizations and so that we have rich public lives in which we can participate in decision making on a daily basis. And we need to do that um, that it's much, much more uh, complex than could be ever resolved in a single sort of form of a town hall meeting. But certainly there are elements. And I hope that my sort of hearkening back to Jefferson, et cetera, reminds us that there are voices of this living democracy in our own history, despite what I was calling the mechanical worldview that has been so dominant. And there are rich, rich roots in every part of the social renewal that's gone on in this country. Uh, generation after generation, on which we now can build. So yes, there are elements on which to build.
0: Given given the complexity um, of the culture and the the impossibility of uh, all of us gathering in one town hall, um, there are, there are two questions here which have to do with technology, and I wonder if you could speak to uh, how you see technology. One person, one of the questioners, uh, really is is asking the question, doesn't uh, high technology disempower us for uh, living democracy? And the other is asking the question, can we have an information highway, such as, an inter- as the internet, to be used for improving democracy? Would you just say a word about how technology disempowers or empowers us as a, a single global community? Just say one word? All right, yes. Um. <laughs> Thank you. You know, and the answer to both <laughs> questions is probably yes in some sense.
2: Look, we are terribly, terribly isolated one from another these days, more so than perhaps any time in this culture's history. As an African-American, of course, I have to make an exception. My people have always been isolated in very, very profound ways from an awful lot of the rest of this, of this nation. But, but the fact is that, indeed, we are more isolated one from another perhaps than ever before. At the same time, we have tremendous potential in this technology to begin to communicate with each other. And we're finding that potential very, very um, gradually um, among so many people. And yet one of the greatest dangers is that we must be sure to make sure that an awful lot of the population is not left off this new information superhighway and indeed very large proportions have no access to it today. So please keep this question of accountability and question of access in mind whenever you begin to analyze the benefits and the costs of this, new, of this new technology, um, it, there are very real benefits and very, very real costs, and it's going to have to be sorted out. But let me re- just return to just one earlier point. The examples that we keep uncovering of democracy come alive have very little to do with this very modern technology, something but not a great deal. What they still have a lot to do with, however, is people learning for the first time in most of their lives to come together face-to-face, as you in this congregation can do. So, so much more easily than many others, coming together face-to-face, white and brown and black people, rich people and middle-class people and poor people, um, all sorts of people, and beginning to solve their problems together, to learn those skills that help them deal with conflict, communication, um, mediation, negotiation, even celebration, to learn those for the first time in their lives and to come together in new ways, new, new to them that we simply, you know, are not going to be augmented by the technology these days. So it's a very, very complex sort of answer, really.
0: Thank you. One person says, regarding your concern that multinational corporations control so much of U.S. and world wealth and have the ability to influence our ability to solve problems for for all citizens, how can we change the level of our own influence and power so as to get going on solutions?
1: Well, I think it is happening. You see, I think that what we take for granted today as the structure of economic life has, been, has emerged in a wink of historic time. I mean, really, uh, in, in my lifetime, uh, what we think of now, or what we accept as global corporations, uh, I believe I, I saw the statistic that four worldwide corporations c- control more assets than 80 countries with half the world's population, Uh, and yet they are unelected. Um, So I think that what is emerging is examples that I gave with uh, the Saturn plant and GM and the recognition of the role of the worker in decision-making, that this begins, once that genie is out of the bottle, so to speak, once it's assumed that the worker brings him and herself to the workplace and not simply a set of skills, once that notion is begun it begins to be embedded in our economic life, then I think we will begin inventing a ways to make corporations democratically accountable. Harvard Business School George Lodge wrote a very remarkable book during the 1970s uh, about this gradual shift he foresees where the stages that he foresees in the future is that there will be elected members, long-term employees will be elected to governing boards in corporations, and corporations will have covenants with the communities in which they operate and gradually they will be brought into the democratic fold uh, as we begin to acknowledge their public nature. What is so inhibiting to us today, as I alluded to, is the myth that these are private when actually their impact is so profoundly public. And so it, it's, I think, a gradual shift that, that is taking place as we begin to change our assumptions about what is the legitimate role of the worker and the community. I mentioned Teresa Francis in the talk, Teresa Francis, actually developed through this Naugatuck Valley Project, 30,000 families, developed the the credibility in that community to actually be able to negotiate with the CEOs. They were threatening to leave that community and desert the the pension, promised pensions, abandon those, And they got the, the, the corporations to negotiate. That is beginning that process of democratic accountability to the communities in which they've operated. I think it's this evolution that that we're perceiving
0: one of the uh, members of the audience uh, says you are an inspiration but some of us who have practiced what you preach are tired would you suggest ways for us to mentor younger more energetic people to continue the struggle and can I I'd like to ask that this be the last question and that you also take the opportunity at this point in just a, a very brief response as to what, in your own experience, gave rise to your hopefulness and uh, to where you are today. Why do we Yes, please.
1: Okay. How many minutes do we have? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm glad that you asked this question. I think that, as I said, democracy isn't easy. And the organizations that we see be so, being so effective in public problem solving are those that recognize the need to nurture. In fact, almost giving sabbaticals to each other and say, hey, Alice, you've been working you know, several months on this, take a break, relax, we'll call you in a month or so. There's There's a consciousness of the need to come in and out, to pace ourselves, because public life, working on these terribly difficult issues, it's exhilarating, it's also exhausting. And I think, again, back to the need to mentor our young people, to bring that youthful energy in. I see it in my own children, uh, the, the desire uh, to plug in very practically, draw that energy into all of our organizations, certainly. And personally, I, I say that, that what has, what my, um, I grew up um, <laughs> daughter of parents who founded a Unitarian church in the 50s in Fort Worth, Texas, during the McCarthy era. Very brave people, uh, who certainly had a powerful influence on me. And I think the other thing that I can say in terms of what we need to keep us going is, since we are these social creatures, we need to have buddies and allies. We need to pick people who will support us and, and, and catch us when we fall. And in my case, I've been uh, incredibly blessed to have a husband uh, like that. Uh, but we all, even if we can't marry them, we need to find them and, 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 and pull them around us because ultimately it's each other that keeps us going.
0: Francis LePay and Paul Dubois. And Paul, I'm sorry that we don't have time Uh, for you to answer that last question because we need to conclude this with the radio listening audience. Thank you so much for being here and for challenging us and for giving this word of hope. And thank you all for being with us for the Town Hall Forum.